From Pure Advantage, I'm Simon Miller, and welcome to our podcast, the destination for leading-edge discussion with some of the world's experts in green growth, regenerative development, business, and climate change. Our Regenerative Future, Season 2, looks at Otatu Nahiri, our forest, and stems from our collaboration with project partners Tane's Tree Trust, New Zealand's preeminent native forest experts and scientists. Together, we've taken a deep dive into the regeneration of native forests as a source of natural, spiritual and economic value. The purpose of this series is to spark cross-sector dialogue and get people thinking about the potential for native forests in a regenerative and restorative economy. For listeners interested in a bit more, we produced a short documentary, Otato Nahiri, and compiled an array of expert contributions and videos, all hosted and freely available on pureadvantage.org and tarnaystrees.org. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for being on the journey to Our Regenerative Future Season 2. Across the country, there's growing concern about the speed and volume of permanent pine forests being planted for their carbon sequestration potential. So-called carbon farming, this forestry is incentivized by the emissions trading scheme, which favors fast-growing exotic species such as radiata pine over indigenous forests. Partly this is because so little is known about the carbon potential of native species compared to the much-studied Pinus radiata. However, new research reveals that well-managed planted indigenous forests are better at sequestering carbon and faster growing than is commonly understood. The research by Tane's Tree Trust and Pure Advantage indicates that the difference between pine and a well-managed planted native forest is much smaller than is often suggested. Moreover, planted native trees will store carbon at a growing pace as they age, as well as enhancing natural landscape stock biodiversity and cultural values. Well, to discuss this research, I'm joined by authors of the paper, which is called Carbon Sequestration by Native Forest, Setting the Record Straight. And those authors are Professor Warwick Sylvester. He's the Emeritus Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Waikato. Mark Kimberley, a forest statistician formerly with Scion, and Dr. David Bergen, a forest restoration ecologist and trustee of trees that count. Well, that's quite a mouthful, uh, Warwick, but um, perhaps tell us about Tane's Tree Trust. Who is the trust and why did you do this research? Well, a little over 20 years ago, a group of us uh, got together to discuss the alarming state of the uh, native forest resource. Um, many will know that over 80% of the native forests in New Zealand have been removed over the last uh, thousand odd years. And uh, about 30 years ago, of course, we had the tree um, sitting group who, were, who successfully prevented the logging of old growth native forest. And that, that set about a movement to preserve every little bit of native forest from exploitation. So we went from one extreme to another extreme. The group got together to try and present a view of native forest that was all-encompassing to, to value the forest for all of its properties. And uh, the point of difference that we established was that we in New Zealand have some of the most amazing timber trees of the world. Think kauri, think totara, uh, think uh, the beach species, think rimu. 
it's beautiful. And, and then we began importing all these tropical trees to take the place of our beautiful natives. So our point of difference is that we uh, certainly um, move to preserve the native forest and to grow the native forest and also to allow native forest species to be uh, managed for production. So there is a, uh, a production element in, in what we say. But uh, above all, we've uh, produced uh, masses of evidence to show that you can grow these trees and, and how to grow them. So the point of difference, as I say, is we advocate not only for all the non-timber values or the ecosystem services of native forest, but also for the opportunity to be able to grow them for production. Hmm. And suddenly we've discovered the carbon sequestration potential of forests. Uh, I say suddenly because it's become very popular, but you know has always been there. And you've created a database of indigenous forests. Tell us about that database, the plantation database that has been developed by Tane's Tree Trust. Perhaps I could step in here. Um, yeah. oh, David, Vincent. yeah. The um, yeah yeah Tana Street Trust has got this uh, what we call the Tana Street Trust Indigenous Plantation Database, and um, it really uh, stems from uh, surveys that started while I was at uh, Forest Research Institute in the in the eighties. Uh, we we completed another survey of planted native stands throughout the country in two thousand and ten as part of Tana Street Trust. And that really is uh, providing the, the growth data uh, from over 120 plantings of natives throughout the country uh, that underpin the carbon modelling that uh, we are that is part of this this current research. Mm -hmm. um, the pl plantings they range from quite small grows to you know, slightly bigger stands of one to two hectares. Uh, yes, it doesn't sound much, but uh, that's what we've got to work with. Um, there's, there's been, of course, thousands of plantings of natives over the years, um, but a lot of them have have been lost, if you like, in terms of we don't don't have the records of when exactly they were planted and where they occur now. And after a while, of course, a plant stand to some degree starts to look like a natural stand, so we're not always necessarily sure um, of the history of those stands. So we're having to be Quite selective about what data goes into our into our database. Nevertheless, hmm. over the last uh, decade or two, there's been a lot more planting, and we're quite keen to make sure that we start capturing a lot of that data as well. D David, this is distinct from the conservation estate, where uh, we might have had natural stands left for, uh, for long periods. Yeah. You're talking about newly planted. How recent are these planted stands that you're talk talking about? Uh, invariably, most of these stands are, are on private land, uh, Maori land, and on council land um, in reserves. Uh, very, uh, there's, I don't think there's very many, if, if any, on the conservation estate. Um, what we're really interested in is the, uh, are the growth rates. So it doesn't really matter where they occur. What, the most important thing is that we know when, what, what year they were planted. And then if we can get some idea of how they were managed over the years. We, we've got stands that date back to um, 110 years old, just one or two. Um, but then a lot of them are now, uh, you know, sort of uh, 10 years or less as well. Hmm. 
So you're building a database of knowledge about where these stands are and their growth rates. It's then another exercise to calculate their carbon sequestration potential. And uh, I guess I don't really know how that exercise is done. Mark, how do you assess the ability of a stand to absorb carbon dioxide? Well, um, so a tree... Uh, the, the, the matter in a tree is basically 50% carbon. And um, as a rough rule of thumb, for every cubic metre of wood in a forest, to create that cubic metre of wood, um, the, the trees must have removed around one tonne of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So the, through the process of photosynthesis, the, the tree uses sunlight to power the whole operation. It, extracts the um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, um, releases the oxygen back and uses the carbon to build up the forest. So that's the rough rule of thumb. One tonne of CO2 is equivalent to one cubic metre of wood. Um, but we can get, we've got more accurate um, conversion equations that we use that were developed by um, a team of scientists at Scion over quite a few years using samples from Filled or, or fallen uh, native trees from all over New Zealand. So basically, they would go in and um, cut up trees, take samples from them, and dry them, weigh them, work out how much weight there is. Um, and 50% of that weight is going to be carbon, roughly, and then um, and relate that to the volume of the tree. We have these conversion equations. Basically, we, we all we need is a measurement of the diameter or the height. In the species, and we can work out how much carbon is in that tree. Mm. So, in the and we go to a planting, a plot on the ground, which is a, of a fixed area plot, and we count the number of trees in, inside that plot to give us how many trees there are per hectare. Then we measure the diameters of those trees and their heights, and we apply our carbon equations, and we can calculate the total carbon in the tree, including the roots and the bark and foliage and branches. And um, and we can calculate from that how much CO2 that tree must have removed or that forest must have removed from the atmosphere during the course from the time it was planted through to the time that we measure it. Do you have to apply some sort of uh, time component to this? Because I'm, I imagine yes. that they absorb carbon at different rates at different stages of their life. Um, yes, so um, you can imagine when you first plant some seedlings in the ground, they're not absorbing much carbon. They take a while to get established, and it's only really when their crowns are fully developed and the the, the canopy is, is is covering the site, and um, there is with no gaps that they are really growing uh, and absorbing at the maximum. So, mm. um, so you really have to wait several decades before. Um, you know, before you reach that kind of um, maximum level of carbon sequestration. But then that can then continue for many decades into the future. So um, generally we um, assess the carbon at a, an age, say, of 50 years. We, um, we can extrapolate the, um, the values we're getting to, to work out how much carbon we expect to stand to, to sequester over, say, the first 30 Fifty years from planting, and we um, and we and we work that out as a usually as a tons of CO two per hectare per year kind of 
value. Mm-hmm. Warwick, we now have this research that has been done into just how effective native forests are at absorbing carbon. Can you tell us what this new paper has found? A lot of the talk about sequestering carbon is about planted stands of radiata. For an appropriate comparison, we need to compare native species that have been planted, and we have that database. And uh, the numbers that have come out from that um, just to throw some numbers up to give people an idea of what we mean by these numbers. We're talking about tons of carbon dioxide assimilated per hectare per year by a stand of trees. Uh, a number of five or six is quite low, and we admit that that is low, and um, beginning uh, growth of uh, native species is about that order, and, and uh, we, we've measured that as well. Um, a number of 10... Um, uh, starts to get up there. A number of 15 is considered reasonably high. When you get into the 20s and even the 30s, it's very high. And uh, for native species around the world, the the numbers that look like the the 10 to 15 sort of area. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the numbers that we get for uh, native species. So um, the, the notion that native species are slow is based on two things. One is they definitely are slow to establish, and they require quite a lot of management to establish native tree species well. The second thing is a lot of measurements that people have made have been made on remnant stands of of, uh, native forest, which of course are the bits of land that weren't available or weren't useful for farming. So they're the poorer hill slopes, the skeletal soils of the hills, are where we've got remnant stands of native species and measurements of those will indicate, you know, a reasonably slow uptake. But uh, to make a, a, an adequate comparison with radiata, we believe we should be comparing managed planted stands of natives, and that's what we've done. Hmm. And those are the numbers that we, we've achieved. And they're the order of, uh, once established, 15 to 25. So we're right up there. And this equates very well with native species right around the world. What you're saying is that hitherto the uh, understanding of the carbon sequestration potential of native forests has been based on effectively scrubland. So we're talking Manuka and Kanuka on poor soils. And that data has been kind of the, the given understanding of the potential for native forests. And, and this research that you've done now on these planted managed sands is revealing that the potential is much greater. In, in fact, in, in another um, uh, almost comparable uh, with pine forests. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, the lookup tables for the EDS uh, for natives refers only to uh, regenerating scrubland, and mm-hmm. that's the order of six. Uh, those are the only sort of published uh, lookup. Those are the values that are used for native forest. There's no doubt that native species don't get underway until the order of 20 to 30 years. And by then, they're up in the region of 15 to 20 or 25. And we've got lots of figures which show that. Hmm. Mark, Warwick referred to lookup tables just before. Uh, What are lookup tables? Why are they relevant to this discussion? Um, Well, the the MPI, Ministry of Primary Industries, they have um, published 
some tables that people use, um, small growers use for estimating the, the amount of CO2 um, they have removed from a, a stand of trees. And, and there are lookup tables covering various different types of forest, including radiated pine and Douglas fir and, and, and so on. And there's one table for indigenous forests that has to be used for all indigenous or native forests. But this lookup table, as Warwick um, mentioned, is, ba- is really based on regenerating shrubland, Manuka Kanaka shrubland. Uh, it's, it has a value roughly the mean uh, um, carbon CO2 per hectare per year is six and a half. So um, six and a half is quite low. Um, as Warwick said, our planted data from planted um, species such as kauri and totara and rimu um, are more like 15 or 20. And, and just as a, a comparison, the radiata pine lookup tables are in the mid-20s. So, yeah, so that's why um, if you plant native trees and, and you apply the MPI lookup tables, you'll, you'll be way under predicting the amount of carbon that your planted native trees will probably be sequestering. Why does that matter? What are the implications of that data? So those tables are used um, for the ETS, um, uh, which I'm maybe not the best person to talk about, but... Um, I'll the, give it a go. Okay. The, I mean, the ETS is uh, a means of people, if you're growing forest, you can, you can claim, you can sell your carbon credits from those growing trees to people who, who need to buy them to cover their emissions. So um, it's a system the government has put in place to, to try and encourage um, people to grow trees to sequester carbon, which will help New Zealand meet its its um, commitment to reduce um, emissions or to reduce the net emissions, um, which can be either achieved by either reducing emissions or by increasing sequestration through growing trees. So, um, so if you're a, a forester and you're looking at growing and um, planting some trees and and claiming these credits and getting some income from them, which you can then get as like an a regular stream of income coming from your trees, which are just growing and absorbing carbon. I mean, if you grow radiata pine, you'll get a pretty good income because the carbon is pretty high. The, the level of sequestration is very high, and it's and the lookup tables are pretty are pretty accurate for radiata pine, um, and because they're developed using a lot of data and and are very reliable. So. Um, but if you're growing natives, you're at a big disadvantage because you're using lookup tables that were developed for regenerating shrublands, hmm. which are, are not really typical of the sort of um, forest you would be planting if you were planting natives. David, this has pretty big implications for uh, farmers and for foresters and, and landowners. And the data that you've produced, these insights that you produce, but they'll only be useful if indeed MPI adopt them. Is is that right? You know, what what are the chances of you convincing MPI to include this new data in their lookup tables? Um, well we we would um, encourage uh, MPI to consider perhaps 
a second set of lookup tables for planted stands. And, you know, and the caveats around that, of course, are that they are uh, they, they're planted on reasonably good sites and that they're well managed. And, um, and we would expect, um, if that's the case, that they would grow uh, considerably better than the regenerating stands. So, so and, and even our plantation database is reflecting uh, a lot of stands that are, have been planted on uh, much better sites than uh, regenerating uh, forest on, on marginal lands, mm. upland sites. Um, you know, with skeletal soils, that sort of stuff. So, so I think you know, having you know, retaining the current EDS table for regenerating scrublands, and then having uh, uh, using our database to 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 develop a second set of um, growth figures based around planted stands is would be would be quite a good thing for MPI to consider for the EDS. Mm. But why does this matter, Warwick? Why does it matter that we are truly understanding the carbon sequestration potential of native forests? Well, let's think of the word slow. When someone says something is slow, it's kind of meaning. Its meaning can be an absolute sense and its meaning can be in a relative sense. And the term slow is generated because there's no doubt native species grow slower than radiata. Let's think why. Radiata has nearly had a hundred years of research into managing it, genetically improving it, and producing a, a, a timber species that is quite outstanding. And there's no doubt native species will be slow compared with that, where virtually zero work has been done into the management potential of our um, native species. So it matters because when someone on the farm is told that you don't want to plant native trees that slow, um, they read that as being an essential truth. And uh, there's no doubt, compared with radiata, they are. But what they don't take into account is all the other properties of native forest. And uh, we'll talk a bit more about that later on, perhaps. But, but it does matter that we use this pejorative term slow. And uh, we could actually come up with some real figures for what slow means. Mm. Mark, could you describe to us what happens with a, a stand of native forest over time and its ability to continue to absorb carbon for a longer period than radiata pine? Yeah, so, you know, a kauri or, or rimu stand at age 50 may be sequestering at that point in time around 30 tonnes per hectare per year. And, and it will continue to do that, we think, for quite a few more decades beyond that point. Um, eventually, all forests will slow, the, the growth eventually will, will slow. Eventually, it reaches some kind of equilibrium point, but that may be, for natives, is far beyond the range of our data. So I can't really speculate too much on that. Um, but certainly for a very long period of time, natives will continue sequestering carbon um, for probably hundreds of years, in fact. Hmm. How would that compare to a plantation of exotics? Well, it depends on the exotics you're talking about. Um, radiata pine, for example, um, sequesters very rapidly from a young age, um, peaks quite early, and then continues to sequester at a high rate 
um, but gradually declining. Um, and radiata pine, I think its longevity is probably around the 100 to 150 years or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, certainly within our, our lifetimes, it will it, it will continue pretty well. But looking into the the distant future, it doesn't. At some point, a radiated pine forest will actually get old, and um, what happens beyond that is is a bit we can speculate. Really, um, mm. native forests can carry. We know, you know, there there are. We look at our natural forests; many of them are many hundreds of years old and carrying quite high levels of carbon. The uh, expectation is that uh, forestry would provide. A lot of the heavy lifting for our emissions reductions up to 2030. In fact, uh, as I understand it, two thirds of our emissions reductions to 2030 of our uh, nationally uh, determined commitment is through offsetting through forestry. So th there is a high expectation, isn't there, that exotic forests like Pinus radiata forests are going to do a big job for us. Is there an opportunity here based on your research to introduce native forests, indigenous forests into that kind of early wind to, to 2030? Basically, if we plant at a higher a higher stocking, a higher density of planting, we, we can actually get quite good sequestration from a reasonably young age. And, and one, um, but, but generally we, you know, it's quite expensive to do that. Um, so we tend to plant we, we tend to plant the trees reasonably far apart in order to um, basically save costs, um, mm. knowing that it means that the early growth won't be that that good. But eventually, when those trees start maturing, they will they will sequester quite a reasonable level of carbon. But one one thing that um, people can do and often do when they plant natives is to plant them as a mixture of shrubs and tree species. So um, the shrub shrub um, seedlings uh, tend to be less expensive. So things like manuka, you can plant um, manuka at reasonably high um, stocking with interplanted in between the manuka tree species such as kauri or kotoro or rimu. And mm. um, those sort of mixed plantings actually do um, can sequester around 15 tonnes per year from quite an early age. So that's one way we've found that um, natives can actually um, contribute, say, over the first 20 years of growth, quite a reasonable level of sequestration. Um, if I can just um, if I can just add to that, and um, I, I totally agree there, Mark. Um, but you know, you did touch on it that it's uh, if it's going to be at high density, we, we just know that the cost per hectare for planting natives is very high, um, and um, I guess. Uh, one of our concerns is that if we if we are to address one of the climate change commission's uh, recommendations to be planting something like 300,000 hectares or establishing 300,000 hectares of native forest over the next 15 years or so, how are we going to do that? And we're not going to do that by planting, and certainly not planting at very high density. There are planting is going to continue as a uh, as a significant. Uh, component of of establishing native forest, but there's vast areas of our hinterland um, that is uh, that, that some are arguing are, is marginal to pastoral farming and is erosion prone, 
it's considered that afforestation of those sites uh, would would benefit um, a whole range of values. Um, how are we going to do that? And this is where I think re we really need to encourage regeneration. And therefore, that's why we're sort of suggesting that the current ETS tables are reflecting what the sort of growth rates we would get from the regeneration. But how can we um, also integrate planting, you know, like seed islands into planting, uh, along with pest animal control, uh, bird predator control, increasing seed production, bringing back seed sources into that mix to help nature do a lot of this work for us, you know. So that's mm. part of that heavy thing that we're sort of talking about as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a binary question of planted versus regenerating. It's it's what kind of tree is regenerating. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I, I mean, the the potential of a forest to to um, store carbon depends a lot on how high the trees in the forest are. So shrubland, um, Manuka, for example, it, it reaches quite rapidly, grows up to about six meters in height, and then pretty much stops. So um, that's why its carbon potential is fairly rapid to begin with, but mm. but um, has has a, a fairly an upper limit. Um, whereas, say, a totara stand will keep growing, the trees will keep growing taller and taller for hundreds and hundreds of years. We're not anti-pinus radiata. We believe that there is a big role for radiata in the short term to sequester carbon, and it's absolutely proven, and it will work. Uh, but uh, what we don't want is it to be done exclusively um, and leave out that, that what we believe is the necessity to restore a lot of our native forests. So it's not just the carbon and um, ETS that drives us. There are a whole lot of other issues. Mm. Well, just expand on that because you mentioned before about when I asked why does it matter, you hinted at some of the other values that – uh, are derived from indigenous forests. Just to expand on what those values are. Well, of course, uh, one of the major ones is the biodiversity one. Um, we're within the native forest as it matures, we get increasing biodiversity. We get habitat uh, available for the widest range of native species, both plant and animal. Uh, and uh, we, we establish a whole lot of other values. Uh, the values on soil stabilization, on water quality, uh, and uh, the, the the values to do with uh, environment, uh, with um, uh, a landscape. Uh, there's a landscape value that we all value uh, to do with native forest. So the, the, the wood that is available, uh, and we advocate for some of it to be harvested, is only very much part of the story. And, and let me just add a little rider to that, <laughs> sort of cut to the chase here, that the, 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 the numbers that we are bringing out are done by a bunch of volunteers. Mm -hmm. the, the, the government uh, ministries have not actually done a significant job in measuring what native species are able to do. So the, the values here uh, are done by Tarnish Tree Trust, which are a bun bunch of volunteers who have to go out and, and grab money from various granting agencies to do all this work. And uh, we've established, I think, a credibility in this area uh, due to the fact that we have got some very good science behind it. And uh, we are trying to balance up 
the books to say that our native forests are a wonderful resource in all respects. The non-timber values related to native forests are legion, and uh, I can refer you to a, a, a book that we've just uh, just published on 100 pages, which establishes all of these values. There are a legion of them, and anyone who walks in that forest will appreciate those, uh, as well as the timber values. It was a surprise to me, listening to David uh, talk in the uh, Tato Nahiri series about the lack of knowledge of our native forests, uh, despite uh, having a forest service for decades and, and having Scion, uh, Crown Research Institute, and, and uh, many university departments dedicated to studying forestries and, and trees. We know so little about our native forests. David, is, is that because so much of our effort has gone into understanding the wonderful Pinus radiata? Um, I think I think to be fair, there has been a lot of work going on in native forests from all all sorts of angles, from uh, various tertiary institutes and CRIs. Um, um, I guess it's it's I guess Botanics Tree Trust comes from is that we are um, taking the applied bits of that research and trying to get that information in a context that we can appeal to uh, landowners, uh, iwi. Policymakers and what have you uh, about the potential for uh, you know the greater potential for our native forest than is than is realised. So mm. you know, our, our challenge really is to take a lot of that information out out there. Yes, sure, identify the gaps that are still there that that we need to know more about how some of these species tick, and then um, try, try and get research programs underway to fill those gaps. But then, just as importantly, get that information out in such a way that um, uh, we can appreciate where natives can be grown successfully to to meet the multiple objectives of carbon and timber and all of the values that that Warwick, Warwick has talked about. Mm. One thing we haven't touched on is um, the impact of fire. You know, so much of the Californian carbon sink went up in smoke this year. Fire must be yeah. an imminent danger for plantation forests that, uh, again, an, an indigenous forest will be more fire resistant. Am I right about that? Well, not not necessarily. It really comes down to the species. And uh, with climate change and increasing temperatures, uh, we need to need to be aware that, you know, some of our, uh, and certainly our cereal species like uh, Manaka Kanaka are quite, uh, quite fire prone. Um, I mean, the Really, the answer is in, around trying to establish a diverse forest um, species where it has a mix of um, low, medium, and high flammability species, um, and capitalising on that. So, you know, we're we're working at the moment on a fact sheet which is bringing, which is, which is talking about building resilience into our native native forests, um, and that's about having green fire breaks uh, made out of, you know, that which are planted with species that are got larger, thicker, uh, you know, green leaves that are more. Uh, that are more fire resistant than, than others, um, mm. but you know, I, I, I guess that, you know it's it, it comes back to my point that we really want a, a a diverse mosaic 
land use uh, rather than just one huge monoculture of a single species throughout our landscape. And we would really support uh, more natives and mixed natives, not necessarily single species stands. They are mixed uh, native forest types, which is mimicking what nature um, had here originally. So I just want to touch on the point you mentioned, David, and, and that is we don't want to leave the impression that we're going to grow uh, single species stands of natives and clear fill them. That's, that's the last thing we're advocating for. As David said, we want mixed stands. And the thing that we have advocated for and written the book on, and that's continuous cover forestry, maintaining the, the cover of forest during harvest. And we've, we've done several uh, examples of this in the north with torture logging and uh, we've got videos on this and it, it's absolutely brilliant you can take uh, single trees out and uh, within a year you can't see where they've been taken from that's continuous cover forestry and uh, we certainly don't advocate for clear felling of native species your description of a mosaic uh, could include pastoral and agricultural activities couldn't it and i th thought it was interesting the way that beef and lamb were very proud to say that if they took into account their native stands, uh, such as the QE2 stands on many farmers' lands, that they were approaching carbon neutrality uh, as agriculturalists. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, and it's about basically, um, you know, matching your, your land use to your landfall uh, and so that you've got appropriate um, production of um, you know those easier slopes and the flats and what have you, which will be horticulture and and, and pastoral grazing, uh, and even in amongst that, there are going to be areas where you'd want to have um, forest and wetlands and riparian areas uh, where natives can, uh, can 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 play a major role in, in terms of biodiversity and connections and corridors and all that sort of stuff uh, through to your 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 that country, hill country, where uh, some of it is going to be um, okay to put into radiator pine because it's uh, easy to access and close to ports, uh, and and but a lot of it would probably benefit from going into permanent native forest and with the option of continuous cover forestry harvesting in the future. And as uh, a former Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment put it in a, in a very useful publication that he put out entitled Weaving Resilience into Our Rural Working Lands. Mm. So it's a mixture yeah, of exactly. appropriate places for appropriate species. Exactly. You'd almost call it regenerative. Yes, almost call it regenerative. We've heard that word. <laughs> <laughs> When you drive around the motorways of New Zealand, you see this beautiful planting by Wakatahi. Is any of that countable in your planted uh, database? Within the database, we have various small stands similar to those. Um, a, a lot of those plantings are, are more shrub-type species, and we, we, we also we do have data on shrub species, which um, planted shrubs we find, um, as I, I alluded to, can quite rapidly for um, mm. quite a few years, but they, they do have a sort of upper limit. Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting that uh, um, over the lifetime of my career, I've seen the, the planting on, on roadsides change dramatically from some pretty awful stuff, you know, growing ivy and, uh, and uh, um, exotic trees. And now we've got almost exclusively a native cover. It's, it's mostly in shrubs. 
Um, we've been advocating with various agencies to plant some um, trees amongst it as well. And a lot of the feedback is they get too big, we have to chop them down. Uh, so there's, there's another battle to be fought there, but, but many of the plantings are absolutely magnificent. Mm. Uh, and and uh, they make a very good roadside. They could, they could be counted, I think. Just so much of our focus in climate uh, and carbon management is around 2030, but uh, the world will continue after 2030. What role can we see Indigenous forests playing 2050 and beyond? Well, and just talking about carbon, um, a mature kauri forest, an uh, old-growth kauri forest, has stored in it as much as 3,000 tonnes of CO2 per hectare, and possibly more in many places. Beach forests also, because remember, the, the, the carbon stores not just in the wood. The forest floor has enormous, and the soil, there's enormous amounts of carbon which are accumulated over that period of time. And, and uh, particularly the kauri forest has a massive amount of stored carbon. Um, it's very, very conservative, conserving all the elements that it accumulates. So that's only one part of it. The carbon's only one part of it. The, mm. the other part is the heritage value that New Zealand was a forested country. And I think most New Zealanders, when they go into a native forest, feel that this is part of their heritage. Uh, Māori certainly value the, the, all the attributes of the forest. And, and uh, they use the forest for, for uh, kai. They use the forest for all sorts of values. And I think most New Zealanders will. So um, that's one of the things that drives us. Only one of the things, but uh, certainly mm. an important one. I mean, beyond the, the climate crisis, we have a probably a larger mm. crisis around biodiversity, and the role of indigenous forests in restoring biodiversity must be very profound. The the thing is, we have to get that resource uh, back onto our land, onto the appropriate um, land use types, and, and then look after it. And part of it is a, is a whole package of bringing the groups together, predator-free New Zealand, um, those that are uh, uh, you know trying to control the browsers, those that are uh, concerned about the you know the weeds that are coming into this country so it's a whole package of measures that we need to bring together to basically make make this work and try and address this major major issue of loss of indigenous biodiversity there are four words that encompass this and that is soils water biodiversity and carbon those are the, all the things that native forests bring to us and we've seen all of those going downhill so fast in the last 50 years. What would success look like for you, David, if you were to uh, look back on the efforts of Tane's Tree Trust and, and you know, research such as this? What, what are the wins that you would like to see happen, let's say, even in the next five years? Well, I, well, I think a realisation from uh, landowners, the general public, um, that um, natives can actually be integrated uh, into our existing land uses, and and that and and even even in our urban scapes, I'd love to see a mosaic of land uses that included a serious consideration of more natives in the landscape, and and 
you know, even, even our most productive landscapes are the ones with the lowest indigenous biodiversity, and yet there, you know, there are networks of roads and riparian areas and fences and um, uh, remnants that are isolated that uh, would all benefit from corridors of trees, mm. shrubs and trees, uh, wetlands and what have you, with riparian areas that all could be planted and managed with natives. And and those those sites are in pasture uh, and horticulture for good reasons because they are they are low. They tend to be lowland. They are they are uh, high producing. Uh, you know, good, good climates and what have you. So you're going to get your really good good growth rates there as as well. And that's not and not forgetting that we've got a lot of the rolling to hilly country that also there are opportunities to be integrating our native forest at scale uh, on, the, on, on, the, on those erosion-prone slopes. So, so that, that's my vision, is to see more adoption of natives as a legitimate land use, along with all the other land uses that are not – natives are not competing with it. They, are, you know, they could be enhancing it, in fact. Mm. Warwick, how about you? What, what would success look like for you in, the, in, in these next five years? I'll just go back to uh, 20 years ago when we formulated Carnage Tree Trust. We had a, we had a mission, and uh, that was to involve landers, particularly farmers, into the notion that it's possible and desirable to plant native trees for all of the values, but we gave them the option of planting them for the timber values that could be harvested. I think that was a step change in, in, in understanding. It's taken a while to imbue that into uh, the, the thought processes of many people, and still, still we have resistance to that. Um, the, the, these are a wonderful asset that we have in this country, and we should value them for all of the values, and, and that, that was the mission. I think we're beginning to achieve that. Uh, I, I really believe that the credibility of our mission is now getting there. We've run do, uh, scores and scores of uh, workshops among, amongst farmers, and the, the word is out there, and uh, we believe we're achieving that. How about you, Mark? Yeah, I don't think I've got anything much more to add to it. Basically, I agree with what um, Warwick and David have said, that um, I, I think largely because some of the exotics grow so well in New Zealand conditions, they're quite unique almost in, in the world. Um, there's been so much emphasis on those species at the expense of natives. So it would be good to get the balance a little bit more um, more towards the natives in the future. That's basically what, what I would hope. I would love to see your data be built into those lookup tables. I think that would yeah. be a win. Yes, well, that would be uh, something we can certainly hope will happen fairly quickly. Um, yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all your mahi in this space because, uh, you know, someone has to do the work of the counting, the measuring, the calculating, and uh, it's fallen to you as enthusiasts and as scientists with a real passion for this topic. And so we are very grateful for the work that you're doing. And it's been delightful talking to you all. We wish you all the best. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Vince. To learn more about Pure Advantage and the work we do, visit pureadvantage.org. Watch the stunning short documentary, Otato Nahedi, and read insights from hundreds of expert contributions that highlight New Zealand's strategic advantages by putting the environment at the centre of all business decisions. 
Remember to follow us on Instagram. And if you found this conversation valuable, please rate this podcast, share and subscribe. Thanks again for being on the journey with us.